0: and welcome to the New Schools Podcast. Every child is a genius, full stop. Because every child is a genius, they, we, all have the opportunity to be heroic. And Acton Academy is all about inspiring learners to undertake their own hero's journey. The Acton Academy Network consists of 270 affiliate schools bringing the one-room schoolhouse model into the 21st century that network of schools started with just one in austin texas and it was founded by today's guest and his wife laura it's jeff sandifer jeff started his first business at age 16. while still in high school he also earned a degree in petroleum engineering from the university of texas later he received an mba from harvard founded an oil and gas company generating over $500 million in profits in less than five years, and then ran Sandifer Capital Partners, a multi-billion dollar energy firm. Jeff also taught at the University of Texas, where students voted him the school's most outstanding teacher five times. Business Week named him one of the top entrepreneurship professors in America, and the economist as one of the top 15 business school professors in the world. In 2002, Jeff and a few other entrepreneur teachers founded the Acton School of Business, not to be confused with Acton Academy. Famous for its 100-hour work weeks, the School of Business reduced the time it takes to earn an MBA to just 11 months, allowing students to receive their degree for half the cost. A year after opening, Princeton Review put it in the top three business schools based on student quality, teacher quality, and overall experience. Just six years after establishing the Acton School of Business, Jeff and his wife founded the K-12 Acton Academy. Speaking of Mrs. Sandifer, Laura is the author of a book we highly recommend called Courage to Grow it tells the whole story of Acton Academy and all the children and families who helped make it so successful. Today you'll hear some of that founding story, how to become an Acton Academy affiliate, what Acton learners do after they graduate, and what it means to learn from quests, Socratic discussion, and apprenticeships. If you're a parent who wants to start a microschool with a learner-driven philosophy, you'd be hard-pressed to find a better resource than today's guest. I hope you enjoy this conversation, and I'm honored to be able to bring you two of my heroes, the unshakable Shannon Falkenstein of Acton Academy El Salvador and Jeff Sandifer. Good morning, Jeff
1: Sandifer, and welcome to the New Schools Podcast. We're so happy to have you here today as our guest.
2: Well, thanks, Shannon. Delighted to be here.
1: Excellent so I'd love to start out with the question what is your favorite thing about working with young learners?
2: You know, the thing that, that amazes me the most and, and this happens all the time is just how what they're capable of doing I mean that adults you know we, as adults we just don't appreciate what an incredible six-year-old could do an incredible 10 year old and so we you know, we dumb down our expectations so, so I just think what what continues to amaze me what I love about the model is, is just seeing that young people are capable of far more than we've ever imagined. I
1: love that, thank you. So we have interviewed on the podcast, several Acton owners and early Acton advisors such as Clark Aldrich and Michael Strong and um, Heather Staker. Um, so perhaps our audience knows a bit about Acton Academy already, but could you just catch us all up by telling us the Acton elevator pitch?
2: Sure, I'm, I'm not sure I have it down, but uh, so, so Acton is, we describe ourselves as a learner-driven community, and what that means is we place as much of the responsibility and the consequences in the hands of, of young learners as possible. We want them to be game makers in their own lives. Uh, we, want, we hope that they find a hero's journey in life, uh, that they find a calling that will change the world. In fact, that's our mission. We believe each person who enters our doors is a genius who deserves to find a calling that will change the world. So it's uh, the Acton model is a model that really places extreme responsibility in the hands of learners as young as possible. And uh, and, and that's really what we're all about. And we've been lucky to be joined by people like you and uh, 270 Actons around the world now uh, and adding um, adding dozens at a time of parents who really wanna go on this adventure with us.
1: Nice, thank you so much. Um, so, yeah, our, our podcast audience is families and educators who feel maybe frustrated, limited, or disillusioned even with the conventional education system. And you and Laura were once those parents. Can you briefly tell us your story of going from being a parent who wanted more for your kids to um, where you are today with Acton and 270 affiliates around the world?
2: Sure. And, and I like to make the distinction, at least uh, for Lauren, for me, you know, we don't consider ourselves education reformers. I mean, we are parents who wanted something better for our children, who stumbled into an experiment and found something that others adopted, and that even now we serve families. And so we're not out to change the world of education. We're not into education reform. In fact, we think about it as learners and families. But, but it all started um, when our two boys, Charlie and Sam, were getting ready to move from Montessori into a traditional school. So they were, they were at that age where you, know, you kind of age, start to age out of Montessori. And I went to, our daughter was older and she was at the very best private school in Austin at a middle school. And so I went to see this teacher there and he was the best teacher in the school. And I said, um, I asked him, when should we move the boys? And he was a very tall man. He looked kind of like Abraham Lincoln. He's very tall and kind of slender. And, and he said, well, as soon as possible. And before even I could even think, I responded. And I said, why? And he said, well, because once they've been uh, exposed to that kind of freedom, they won't enjoy being chained to a desk for eight hours a day. And I just blurted out, I don't blame you. And this tall, great educator looked down at the ground for the longest time. And I thought I'd offended him because he was so quiet. And then he looked up and with tears in his eyes, he shook his head and he said very quietly, I don't either." And I went home that day and I said, to Laura, I don't know if we're going to homeschool. I don't know if we're going to start a school, but the very best teacher in our city just told me not to put our boys in a traditional school and I'm not going to do it. We're just not going to do that. And so that was the start of the acting adventure. Uh, We started with a blank sheet of paper. Uh, We ended up designing what I consider to be a one room schoolhouse, 21st century. So all ages of elementary in the same studio and then later. Who would have ever thought we'd have a middle school? We had a middle school and all the middle school learners are in the same room, up to 36 or so in a room. And then, same thing with high school, which we call Launchpad, you know, one room schoolhouse. And then those three one room schoolhouses are collaborating all the time. So the high schoolers are down leading the middle schoolers, or the elementary schoolers are up teaching math to the high schoolers. And so it's just one room schoolhouse. Uh, where we use technology, you know, where it works as a tool, but it's really more about hands-on learning and learning how to lead and learning how to run a culture, learning how to rebuild a society after it collapses. Uh, and so, so that was really the story, and it was just a series of experiments that worked, and the things that worked, we did more of; uh, the things that didn't, we stopped doing. It was about that simple. And then over time, accidentally, people like you found us, and we started growing. And I remember saying to Laura, you know, we should have ten owners. If we had 10 owners collaborating, and learning from each other, the model would, you know, would get better. And before we knew it, we had 10 and then 25 and then 100, you know, and now we've got uh, over 18,000 auditions from families who want to start an acting. And we can't obviously start that many. So we're having to be careful about who we say yes to. But, you know, it's kind of turned into this movement with, like like your acting in you know, El Salvador, acting in 25 countries and um, growing quickly.
1: Wow, that's an amazing story. Um, I imagine maybe some folks in our audience might be considering applying for an Acton affiliate. So let's talk about some more specifics about starting your own. Um, So you said there's about 270 currently in the world in 25 countries. Right. And are they all highly similar or do they kind of have their own flavor?
2: It's a great question because we think of what we're offering as a kit. I mean, this isn't a slick franchise like you might start a McDonald's. It's more like a kit of Legos, and you build your own. And uh, but what we all are the same, the same is in the learner-driven philosophy and the idea that each young person is a genius and they deserve to find a calling. Uh, we you know we're in. We all are the same is that adults are not an authority in the studio in the sense that they're not experts who command. Uh, they are guides who walk alongside. And so I think every acting I've ever walked into looks the same feels the same, and then has the individual flair of whatever a family or a country can bring to it. So they're different in small ways that make them interesting. They're all the same in important ways that make them learner-driven.
1: Okay, okay, great, great answer. Thank you. Um, So how prescriptive is Acton in terms of methodology, content, rules?
2: Yeah, very prescriptive, uh, or or prescriptive may not be the right word. Uh, very duty and honor bound to live up by the principles. So, so the beliefs that each child is a genius, uh, the belief that we don't answer questions in the studio, uh, the belief that we are—you know—we are all believe in economic, religious, and political freedom. Um, so, so these ideas that these are core beliefs. Everyone lives by those, um, and we send out parent satisfaction and learner satisfaction surveys uh, every week or so. And we actually say, how are we doing? And we share those results to make sure we're all staying true to our promises. But it's not prescriptive in the sense of what's going to happen in the studio today. And so we're experimenting all the time. Uh, We have owner and guide forums where there are exchanges going on. Uh, Just before you and I came on, you told me there's an interesting exchange of virtual middle schools across countries. And that's even something I didn't know. I hadn't seen it on the forums. But every day, as you know, we'll get three to five good ideas. And, you know, at our studios, we'll adopt one of them. So uh, the model is continually changing as owners and guides speak to each other on the forums and try new experiments.
1: Fantastic. Um, and what are you looking for? What is Acton Academy looking for in a successful potential owner family?
2: Yeah, so, so we're, we're always looking at families. Um, so we're looking at people who've had some entrepreneurial experience because we're, really, we're not really going to uh, provide the resources to learn how to make payroll or to learn how to sign a rental agreement. I mean, we think that's kind of outside of our purview of what we do. Uh, we're looking for people going on an adventure uh, so typically, entrepreneurial spirit, uh, looking for adventure, have run a project. Um, we actually will occasionally uh, allow a, an educator, but that's really if that educator has uh, a family they want to serve. I mean, so, so we're not, again, about education. We're not about someone comes in and says, I love school. I want to hire teachers. I want to do something that's uh, student-directed or they have different terms for them. So look, that's not what we do. I mean, we're really serving families and we're not in education reform. And so we're really looking for families that are entrepreneurial that wanna try something different and build a community.
1: That's a great distinction. Thank you. And how long about does the process take? Like let's say I'm a family who wants to open, you know, ideally, I think I love Acton. I wanna start one in the fall. And right now it's March. Like how, is that possible?
2: Well, you know, we recommend, uh, I mean, it seems the sweet spot's about six months to eight months out, that any more than that, and you're really just thinking about it, and any less than that, and you're in a hurry. So if someone applied now and, you know, got through in a month or so and came to our orientations that we have every six weeks or so, they came to the May orientation, uh, that wouldn't be a bad time frame. I mean, you could get on the app and launch, uh, particularly if you know where you're going to put it. If you're going to start small and in your home, which we often recommend, Mm-hmm. or in a church or a rental space, uh, you, know, you know, where it is, um, th- you know, then it's fairly easy to do it in four or five or six months. Uh, if you have to go look for real estate, and you're not sure and you haven't, you're not going to be the guide. I mean, make you get more complicated. You might want more like six to eight months, say, in, if you were in Washington, D.C. or somewhere urban, it's a little harder. But but the, the four to eight month time range seems to be the sweet spot for people starting.
1: Very nice. That's great information. Thank you. And you said, how many applicants do you get per year, would you say?
2: Well, we get about 200 a week. Uh, I mean, with COVID, the numbers are fluctuating up and down. Uh, but on average, non-COVID times, we get about 200 a week. And we've processed 18,000 so far.
1: Wow. So that's amazing. Yes, Process so
2: it's, it's,
1: you know, mean, I imagine. Process mean like they've gone through the filter and you've decided yes or
2: no? Yes. Or they've started the filter and the filter is designed to be tough in its own right. So mm-hmm. we want people who really are willing to work hard so that the audition process, and it's not really like an application, it's like auditioning for a play. So it feels as if you're auditioning, you send in videos and you talk. So we're trying to put, you know, have a rigorous proce- uh, process that's in the hands of the person who's trying to join to show what they're made. Of. And so we've had 18,000 people start that uh, about... Oh, I'd say about ten percent of the people finish all the way through, and then we choose from that group of—I guess it's been eighteen hundred or so. You know, the 200, 270 plus that have that have opened an account.
1: Wow! So it's very so it's, in the beginning, it's very self-selecting. It's like you. Yeah, it's very self-selecting.
2: Top of the feet of heart, but if someone really wants to do it, uh, those people rise to the top.
1: Right. That's great. And I understand that that similar funnel is um, mirrored in the guide selection process and also in the learner selection process. Is that true?
2: Yeah, yeah absolutely. So fam- families and for guides, which is our word for teachers, um, uh, families and guides, same thing. We're looking for people who really burn to do this. And you know, it, it, for us, it's all about um, what you, how much you want. I mean, how, how determined are you to get something done? And same thing at acting. We don't really care much about what someone's IQ is as a student or their test score. Because what we found is no matter where people come in, they move rather rapidly and they learn quickly. Back to where we started, you know, it's incredible to imagine. You just can't imagine what young people can do. And adults often underestimate that. And so we see learners move at a 10x normal rate when they're working hard. We can keep them working and, and they keep themselves engaged about a third of the time. So they tend to work, move at two to three times the normal rates. So it doesn't matter what your IQ is. If you actually work hard and you're kind to people and you produce good work product, uh, that's the kind of learner we're looking for. That's the kind of family, that's the kind of owner.
1: Fantastic. So let's shift and talk a little bit more about guides. We interviewed Samantha Dansky on the podcast, which was fantastic. Yeah. yeah, she's so great. But tell us, what, from your point of view, what kind of person makes a great guide?
2: Well, and back to families, too. It's someone who's on a journey themselves. We talk a lot about the hero's journey. And, you know, there's nothing fancy about that. It's the plot of almost every novel and every movie you see. It's Star Wars. It's Pilgrim's Progress. And this idea of the lone hero going out in search of the Holy Grail, you know, fighting monsters along the way and in community. So we're looking for people who are on that kind of journey. And the thing that all heroes find out at the end, you know, is that, it isn't whether you get the grail or not. It's how the hero changes in the process. So we're, we're looking for guides who are on that kind of journey themselves. They want to grow. They want to learn. They want to be tested. And, um, and most of all, they really want to ask questions and they're curious. Um, a guide in acting cannot ever answer a question. And I mean that ever. Ever in the studio at any time, adults are not allowed to answer questions, only to offer choices. And so you need a special kind of person who's curious and really believes that the young person in front of them might be the next Albert Einstein or Madame Curie or Margaret Thatcher or, you know, that you really believe that there's kind of a hero inside and that you treat young people accordingly. And that means you're on the journey yourself.
1: So, we've found um, in our acting that many of our guides have actually decided to become entrepreneurs after working for us and have left. Is that pretty common?
2: Well, at least on our campus, and you know, every acting is different in how they think about it, but our most important hire is an apprentice guide because we only hire someone who's apprenticing and starting, who we think is going to start an acting. Uh, it tends to only be a two or three year process by the time they're kind of finished guiding and it's time for them to move on to something else. And quite often, in fact, we have learners that are starting Actons now. So it, you know, it's, it's this kind of process of, you know, you're on your own hero's journey. And at the end of that journey, many people will start an acting. And that's how we think about friend's guys. We, we just don't hire anyone that we don't think is likely to start.
1: Fantastic. So talking about learners who now are thinking of starting their own actions, um, a lot of questions that we get is like, what do Acton learners do after they graduate? Um, can you talk a little bit more about outcomes?
2: Sure. Um, we're very careful about this, by the way, because we find that even in our own hearts, if we start kind of bragging about what our graduates are doing, it becomes that they're an object for you know for our edification. So so it, it, you know look how smart acting is, look how good our graduates are. So we're really careful not to publish lots of statistics or turn a spotlight on them because they're the ones that have earned it. Um, But what we're finding now, we've got enough graduates that getting accepted into college is no big deal. Um, We've had, in fact, we've got a a candidate that's about to be accepted in the Naval Academy right now. Uh, We've got another graduate that's been accepted into several high-end University of Virginia, you know, Stanford-like schools. Uh, Really, the question isn't whether um, colleges, you know, will take our graduates, it's whether our graduates need college at all. And so they can get in college. Uh, That's, in fact, they can get in high-end colleges. But the question is, do they need to go? And we just had a wonderful uh, situation in October. Uh, One of our uh, launch padders, one of our high schoolers, applied for a job in the film industry. And he was uh, up against 200 college graduates and industry veterans. And so this is a YouTube channel that every video you made gets a million hits. It's a high-end job. And so the young man applies for it. Um, he goes all the way through the audition process and makes it to the finals and he doesn't hear back. So he is so grateful. And this is the important part. He's so grateful that he goes off and spends 100 hours making one of the videos for the company. And he sends it to the CEO with a note and he said, look, I, I understand I didn't get the job, but you gave me a chance. And that's all I can ask for is a chance. And so out of gratitude, I made you this film. It may not be good enough for you to use, but if it is, it's just my gift to you. And the next day the CEO called in and said, you know, you're right, we hired somebody else and we decided we're gonna hire you too. And so he walked in the last day of September and said, I can't come to school tomorrow, October 1st, because I've got a $100,000 a year job. <laughs> um, and I, I will keep up with all my work so I can graduate in May and I'll come back and see you all because I love my Launchpad class. But I've got a real job. And and I saw him recently. I said, What's it like to have a real job? He said, You know, they don't let you do everything you want to do all the time. Yeah, (laughs) when they're paying you that kind of money, you do what they ask you to do. But he's just thriving. And he said to me, He goes, You know, I was thinking at some point I would go to the USC Film School. And I said, Well, you wait three or four more years, you can go as an adjunct, you can teach there. (laughs) You don't need to go get a degree. so that's what we're doing. We're preparing launch patterns and they're preparing themselves for a next great adventure in life. Uh, we started apprenticeships in middle school. And so at the first year of middle school, you're out in the world working. You're working every year after that. And this young man had been in a you know, red carpet Hollywood film. He directed a film. I mean, he'd earned everything he had to get that job. And, you know, maybe at some point he goes back to USC film school, maybe he just becomes an award-winning director and never goes to college.
1: Wow, that's a beautiful story. I love that. I love the values inherent in that story of gratitude.
2: Yeah. And it's it's giving amazing.
1: without he, expecting he, something in return.
2: Yeah, he was so grateful. And, and of course, that came through. And, and our launch managers are just like that. They're out there in the world doing amazing things. Yeah, again, which may or may not include college.
1: Right, thank you. Thank you for that answer. So Acton, you talked about how your sons have been in a Montessori school. Um, And I know we often talk about how Acton has its roots in Montessori. Can you dig a little deeper in that? And what aspects is Acton similar to Montessori?
2: Well, it's funny. Uh, My wife, Laura, and I were walking yesterday and we were talking about I saw a great quote, it was on psychology. It was talking about how Freud and Adler didn't get everything right in psychology and one of the people that came after them said uh, even a pygmy standing on the shoulders of a giant can see further and so i was saying you know don't don't discount Freud and Adler just because they didn't get everything right they were giants and I said to Laura that's how I feel about Maria Montessori I mean she really got everything right her respect for the child her belief in the child's genius Uh, so we we really mirror a lot of that and um, I think I would like to hope that if she came back and saw what we were doing, she would say, you know, for the 21st century and for older uh, learners, this is what I imagine Montessori would be. So we just take a lot from her. Mainly it's the mindset. You know, it's the growth mindset. It's not giving up. Uh, Heroes aren't successful. I mean, heroes aren't necessarily just celebrities or people who get rich. Heroes get back up. I mean, heroes never give up. And I think Maria Montessori had that sense of grit and uh, that, that spirit that young people can do anything. And so we borrowed you know, greatly from that tradition.
1: Fantastic. So what, you know, now we're in the middle of um, this COVID pandemic, it's been almost a year, right? And how has that affected the global acton community?
2: Well, I mean, you know, COVID has affected everyone, and we're no exception to that. In the sense of the uncertainty of knowing whether you can be on campus or not, um, our our campus has been lucky. We've stayed open the entire time, but you know, it's been a matter of luck. I mean, we've 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 managed all the protocols for health and safety, but still, we haven't had an outbreak in the school that caused us to to close. And other people have had outbreaks, so we're all managing that the best we can. Uh, we found that. I mean, literally the next day after we all went virtual, uh, all of our students, all of our learners were online doing squad meetings, planning what they were gonna do, kind of transitioning from hands-on activities to figuring out how to do that from home. I didn't know how to get on Zoom. I didn't know what Zoom was. And you know, they were all on Zoom and they were recording things, and they were working things out. And it was just, our parents were blown away because it was just an automatic transition because to them that was easy. But it wasn't about the technology, it was about the relationships. And it was about the work ethic. And it was about being able to plan ahead your day and set goals and reach them. And so that made it, you know, so we had this period where it was just like, wow. And then we began to realize, you know, human community is very important. And that a virtual acting is not like being in the studio because much of what we do is about community building and hands on and people to people. And uh, you can only do so much of that like we're doing now. It's a wonderful tool. Um, so, while our studios you know, remain strong and I mean, compared to traditional schools, it's just night and day, it's not even close. Virtual is no substitute for being in person. And so, you know, we've tried to stay in person or we have stayed in person the whole time. I know actors around the world have done everything they can to maintain as much human to human contact. And I think that's important. And I'm looking forward to when we get past all of this. Uh, so, we fared much better. Uh, than, you know, than the traditional schools who really weren't prepared because we, we live with technology. And as you know, screen time is not that important to us, but communication is. And so we're good with the technology on that, but it's no substitute for being in person, just not at all.
1: Yeah. So students at Acton do a lot of hands-on uh, projects called Quests right, that are about six weeks runs of learning um, a topic in depth and hands-on, um, and that's kind of gamified. Can you tell us, like, pick your favorite quest and just give us like a rundown of what that looks like?
2: Well, um, my, my personal favorite is called the electricity quest. This is when we do middle school and Launchpad and the, the, uh, the learners are reading about Robert Moses who built New York City and really believed in centralizing you know city building and Jane Jacobs, who really believes cities should emerge on their own. And we always have an overarching question for the year and this one is you know when should a hero submit to authority? And so the question is should cities be emergent or should they be planned? And so the learners are studying about all that and they're putting together their tools and they're learning about electricity. And they're wiring a city so they're creating little bitty houses and streets and amenities and each house has an led and if you have a mansion it has two leds and if you have an apartment house it may have two whites and one red so they all have different power requirements for every so many dwellings you have to have a grocery store or a police station and those have different power requirements so you start out in these small teams building a section of your city but there's an equation that determines the wealth of your city It's based on real, real cities that talks about population density and amenities. And so you know basically how to you know, build a city. What happens though after a time is you realize to win the game your piece of the city has to fit with someone else's piece. But Shannon designed hers on a nine-volt footprint and I did a 12-volt footprint. So now we got a problem. And so over time, these different sections of the cities have to get built onto each other. And you're either rewarded or penalized, depending on how well you do it, for planning ahead or cobbling together, just like real cities. And by the end of this, you've also learned a lot about wind power and coal and natural gas, and you've had to decide how to power your city. And by the final exhibition, which the public's always invited to, you know, there's basically a series of dice rolls to determine whether the wind blows. Our coal prices are up Our natural gas prices are up. Now my friends in Texas at the moment are all freezing to death because our windmills are frozen and our solar panels are covered with snow. And so what seemed like a good bet on, uh, on green technology may turn out to not be a good bet. Same thing happens in the exhibition. And at the end of the day, the city that can keep the lights on for the longest at the lowest possible cost to create the most wealth and prosperity in the city wins. We have learners stay up for, you know, up to you know, from mid till midnight every night of the week, wiring their cities. And they're learning so much about how electricity works, about how cities work, about freedom, about regulation. And so that's one of my favorite quests. And I learned more going through that than I did in my four years as an engineer in college. I learned more about electricity watching them, things I just never knew about electricity as they tried to cobble together their cities. Sorry, that's an example of a hands-on six-week acting quest.
1: Wow, that's fantastic. Did you design that quest?
2: I did. I did. I did. Well, I designed the basics of it and then I watched what they did and as we've repeated it several times, they've really designed that quest because as, as we learn from what different learners do, we can change the rules of the game and to make the game even more fun to play. So I put the bare bones part of it together and they've really built the rest.
1: And so, how do do these projects develop out of what? How did what do they develop out of? Like, did you see that as like a, a major question? You know, as you are an adult and watching cities thrive or not thrive, and then looking at you know, hey, this would be a great thing to engage the students in simulating. Um, and what what other you know, what is the inspiration for each individual
2: quest? Well, I think it it can start from several places. It can start from, gosh, we need to learn something about electricity. Why is electricity important? Or it can start from the overarching question, in this case, when does a hero submit to authority? And then kind of stumbling onto Jane Jacobs and Robert Moses and really saying, gosh, I don't know. Is it better that cities are emergent, that they emerge, or is it better that they're planned? Well, I can see both sides of that case, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. Houston is unzoned in Texas. Austin's highly planned. Which one's better? It's a great question. Um. Better, how do you define better? So they they almost always come out of this looking for a, a synthesis of a really pressing question and a hands-on skill you can use in the real world. So we expect after this quest that you could rewire parts of your house if you needed to, because you understand the difference between AC and DC mm-hmm. and 120 volts and 100 amps. And so uh, like cooking and chemistry, that quest, you know, they're learning a lot about chemistry, but they're also learning to cook. And at the end of that, of the cooking and chemistry quest is a giant exhibition where it's like the TV show Chop where you have to make something, but you get points for describing the chemical reactions going on you know, in a cooking process you didn't know beforehand. And so it's an example of using chemistry to cook. Um, there's almost always, or there is always a real world component to the exhibition and quest.
1: Okay, so practical hands-on component and then a larger, more philosophical dilemma that humans are facing in civilization.
2: And we also, you know, we, while we don't care about the, the transcript at the end of Acton Launchpad or high school, they do look exactly like a high end prep school transcript. So if you, a college looks at them, we can translate Quest into credits for a normal high school. So we're also making sure that, you know, when our young people come out of chemistry, they know far more chemistry than if they said and thumbed through a, ch- a textbook. And uh, taking a standardized test. Yeah. So we're cognizant of that, but truthfully, they just blow that away. I mean, you know, they actually remember all the things about how chemistry works and how to balance equations. Our son just started in aerospace engineering at Georgia Tech, and you know, his the, the chemistry was like was what we did in middle school because he had, yeah. and he remembers it because it was it's real chemistry. It's actually using it to do something, not memorizing equations.
1: Wow, that's very inspiring. Thank you so much. Um, so I know you don't want to I know you're not an education reformer. And I and thank you for making that point clear. Um, but do you probably think sometimes about how COVID will affect education in the future, like the post COVID education landscape? How do you what are some things that you predict will change from elementary all the way to university?
2: Well, the universities are probably the easiest thing to predict because we, those of us who spend a lot of time thinking and watching universities, it's been clear for 20 years universities are in decline. Um, I personally think they're doomed. Uh, that doesn't mean Harvard University won't still be around in 50 years. It will be. But I think the value uh, delivered by universities for the amount of effort put in and the amount of money is, you know, most of them deserve to go bankrupt. So I think we're going to see that accelerated. I believe COVID has shown many parents and many learners that what's going on in universities isn't worth it. Um, I think the ideological um, just poisoning, and and that's not a political statement. You know, it's that people should go to universities and whatever their beliefs when they go in, they should turn them upside down, right, and examine them and tear them apart. And when you're not allowing free speech, that doesn't happen on either side, left or right, everyone comes. So I just think that the um, what we'll see with COVID is an acceleration of the bankruptcy or, or the unveiling of the bankruptcy that's already gone on in universities. So I think that's, that's a done deal and it's just gonna happen faster. Um, K-12, my guess is when things go back to quote normal, everybody goes back to pretty much what they were doing before. And I'm sorry to say that, but <clears throat> the institutional forces of offering kind of free government education is just so compelling. And many parents are busy and I don't blame them. They just want to put their child somewhere and hope it works out. And you know what? Children are resilient and they're smart and very often it does work out. It may not be the best place to have them but most children are going to be fine and they're going to, they are heroes and they're going to figure it out. They're just going to waste a lot of time in the process. And so I think most people go back to the traditional model and it won't change very much. Huh,
1: wow. Sometimes I wonder that I think that because there's been almost a year disruption of the conventions, the habits, the schedule, the compliance, like all of it, that children themselves will go back and say, whoa, why, why do we do it this way? I had all this freedom while I was out. I mean, in a lot of places where they're now, you know, learning from home um, and having access to all the totality of human knowledge on the internet, you know, that, um, that maybe they will be the actual ones who pressure the system to change.
2: Well, the, the only reason I, I, I hope you're right. The only reason I, I question that is, you, when you think about what young people really want to do, they want to go hang out with their friends and they want to be successful. They yeah. want to feel successful. So they don't really care about learning they'll learn a ton right i mean if you set the game right they'll learn a ton but they're not there to learn they're mm. there to hang out with their friends mm. and they're there to they want to feel successful being at home in front of a screen you know even though you might learn Khan academy math faster isn't being with your friends and it doesn't make you typically feel successful so I think you'll see the trade-offs of people going back just to be with their friends and kind of create whatever community you create inside the traditional school, and the learning will still not be very good. That people will take that trade-off, and that parents will take it ver- rather than the alternative actually have to build something. Right. I mean, it's expensive to go to a private school, or it's very hard to build something. And I'm afraid most parents, m- many parents, have to make a living. I mean, yeah. so I, I, you know, I don't, I don't. I'm not questioning that trade-off. I think it's a tough Mm trade-off. But that's why I don't think we'll see a lot of changes. Uh, Educators think children really want to learn. And I think a lot of educators want children to become productive citizens. I couldn't care less for that for my boys. They're not cogs in a machine. Mm -hmm. You know, they are free individuals out to go change the world. That's what we do. And um, I think a lot of these young people, even though they're trapped in traditional schools, will eventually go do that anyway. It's just they will have wasted 10 years of their life uh, being trapped inside some place where they're told to sit at a desk and you know be chained to that desk and do what they're told. So I, I often wonder if students who drop out aren't the smartest ones. I mean, right. I really, I mean, that's, it's a brave thing to do. So I, I hope I'm wrong. I hope it changes. But the institutional forces are pretty strong. Look, look at the, you know, look at the schools not reopening today. Um, the traditional forces are pretty strong or those schools will be open
1: right 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 okay thank you so much for for venturing into that with me um so okay so final question i love to ask if you could give our listeners a metaphor comparing conventional education with what you're doing what would your metaphor
2: be Well, my favorite metaphor comes from one of the acting owners. And I said, we don't have many educators, but this man was actually a very uh, uh, award-winning educator from England. And we had given him an acting affiliate uh, because he wanted to put his children in an acting academy. And he came to orientation. And we had this period at the very end of orientation where people in one breath said something they'd learned they'd never forget. Or they said someone they wanted to thank, or something they were going to do at eight o'clock the next morning. So it was kind of a summing up of the orientation. And this man beautifully said, he said, you know, it is as if all of my life I had been a tiger expert, someone who knew they knew everything about tigers. But in the last 24 hours, for the first time, I, dis- I discovered I have been studying tigers in cages. And now that I've seen tigers in the wild, i realize realized what magnificent creatures they are and that I know nothing about tigers at all. And I thought that pretty much describes what it's like to be inside an acting academy. The tigers wow. are magnificent creatures. Did you cry
1: because you're oh, making me want to no. cry? No, <laughs> Every,
2: everybody there ever did because he was so heartfelt and he said it beautifully. And, you know, he meant it. You knew that his life was changed forever. He was never, ever going to think about a young person the same. Um, so I thought that was a, a you know a beautiful, vulnerable disclosure by an educator who's seen something different.
1: Wow, that's beautiful. And did he open in acting?
2: Yeah, he did. Yeah.
1: In England. Yeah. Yeah, I hear Europe is is not as open as the United States or certainly yeah. Texas to in the, innovation. I
2: should say during the process of opening because the process is harder there. Because you're right. Yeah, we have fewer, fewer actors in Europe than almost any place else.
1: Yeah. Wow, Jeff. That's a beautiful story. Well, thank you so, so much for your thank time you. today. I'm sure our audience learned a ton and I hope there's Pre, you know, uh, pre-acting families out there listening who understand the process a little bit more and feel very inspired by you.
2: Well, I'll put in a final plug. Even if you don't start an acting, if uh, my wife Laura wrote a book called Courage to Grow, and if you don't start an acting, just go read that book. It's a fun read, and you can really start one in your house by yourself without our help. Uh, and you can really do many of the things we do at acting by just reading that book and it's a it's a fun read so go if if you're interested and you don't want to open a school quite yet go grab courage to grow and at least that'll that'll get you started
1: fantastic yes it's a great book Um, and we of course are going to have all of um your contact information for Acton in the show notes but if someone just wants to go right now and check it out what would be the url to go to
2: yeah just uh, go to amazon and go and enter courage to grow laura sandifer and it'll pop up and you'll have one as uh, at least if you're in texas you'll have one as soon as everything falls everywhere else in the world you'll have one in 24 hours so
1: great great and for acton academy actonacademy.org
2: actonacademy.org yeah okay. you can go there and start the uh, audition process
1: awesome okay thank you so much jack all
2: right Take
1: care. stay warm bye, bye.
0: Thanks for listening to The New Schools Podcast. Tell a friend. Previous episodes and show notes, including any books or websites our guests recommend, can be found at thenewschools.com. If you're a parent who is looking for a new school for your family, send us a message. We would love to help. We can answer questions, share the resources we have, and help you get in touch with people in your area who are on the same path, determined to provide their kids with the best education it's wildly important work thank you for doing it and we'll see you next time